I need to sort of make clear that um, this paper is very much about sort of hypothesis formulation, so I'm not going to be talking about data. Um, I'm really just going to be talking about some ideas that are going on in my head when I can't get to sleep, which is most nights. Um, and I also need to credit Riza for really pushing me on this because as anyone knows who's had a conversation with him, with levels of enthusiasm that I can never muster, <laughs> he forced me to sort of confront these kind of big questions that I had in my head but didn't realize that I had in my head. After my book came out, I started thinking about all the different projects that um, I could potentially pursue. And uh, all of them, despite the fact that they were very different in uh, many respects, were um, sort of bound together by this question of success, post-success. What happens after activists and NGOs are successful? Now, I have to be clear here that when I talk about post-success, it doesn't just mean when NGOs solve the problems that they seek to solve, right? Environmental um, protection NGOs are never really going to solve the problems that they seek to solve. Um, Post-success for me could be um, simply, well, when funders have decided that you're success successful enough, right? Or the international community in general thinks you've done a good enough job, we don't really need to pay attention to you as much, okay? So success in this respect is very broad, post-success. Why should we be interested in this? Which is, I think, the question that you asked me. Um, <laughs> um, I think for a number of different reasons. Um, obviously, we're all very interested in civil society, whether or not we call it civil society, um, and uh, what the mere existence and continued existence of NGOs might mean for, uh, for uh, polities in general. Why is it currently not well understood? This is what I started thinking, at, thinking through after you and I had a conversation. Um, these are just ideas. One might be that a lot of the literature might have sort of an instrumentalist bias. That is to say, it assumes that NGOs exist to serve a purpose, right? So why would you be interested in post-success if, really if NGOs really just exist to meet one particular need? I don't think that's as big of a problem as the next two which would be the civil society and democratization bias, which assumes that these organizations should ultimately lead to greater political change. The problem here is if they don't lead to greater political change, for example, China, well, then it's not post-success. So we're not even, we wouldn't be concerned about what's going to happen to them afterwards, okay? And then the final one, and this is something that I, that I address a lot in my work, is the, ideal, the, the idealist bias. This is about the romanticizing of NGOs that goes on. And that would assume that activists are sort of purely minded. They're really just concerned about that issue that they're, um, that they're engaged in. And they're not going to change after success, or whatever that is. Or maybe they'll never give up because they, they won't think that it's good enough, right? An idealist really probably is never, uh, is never satisfied with the result. As I sort of said in the, or the title of the last slide, says we sort, of under, we sort of understand emergence. I mean, I like to think that I've contributed a little bit to that in, in my book about the emergence of NGOs, but we don't really know what happens after. And some of the main findings of my book, um, NGOs have risen in closed polities like China, but it doesn't hasten political change. Um, to secure political opportunities, which I talk a lot about, they have to adapt to changing state interests. All this stuff, everyone in this room probably knows. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. 
Um, but this key point in the last is that economic opportunities, and we've talked about, several of us have talked about this, are the most vexing for most of these NGOs. And the space to adapt and get more, or get more economic opportunities are very limited. Um, and what the paper begins with is just sort of a snapshot of sort of these little, it's not a case study, they're snapshots of, of um, incidences where you have NGOs that seem to be sort of changing. And most of this occurs because the economic opportunities that they once enjoyed are drying up, whether this be with um, the, uh, the retreat of Global Fund um, or previously with environmental organizations, the retreat of uh, Ford Foundation for, that was originally funding them. Um, and early registration data that we have shows that there's an economic turn as well for reasons that we'll discuss later. Um, at least in the survey that I did for my book, 50 to 67% of NGOs secure business registration. So they're not not-for-profits, which is, again, a theme that has already been brought up, brought up today. So how do we understand and sort of explain the puzzle? Um, what I'm interested here is how Chinese NGOs have increase, increasingly embraced what seem to be more economic orientations, maybe less not-for-profit than they once were. Um, and the three key questions here, and I put those sort of National Geographic boxes around the two that I'm going to talk about most today, what has driven the rise of social entrepreneurship among activists in China? That's my political economy of adaptation. Um, the second one, how has the evolution occurred? The paper uh, posits this evolutionary theory, which you, you use the maths, and I we sort of use the biology, I guess. Um, I'm not going to talk about it too much today, but it's in the paper. And then the hypotheses, or what are the potential impacts of this shift, which I think is most interesting. Um, as I sort of suggested, there are aren't many good theories on what we could think of as kind of a paradox of success. What happens to activists and civil society when they achieve their goals, or what happens when their funders dry up, which is really kind of what I'm using as a proxy for post-success. Um, and to develop, to, to develop these good theories, we need to be more honest about the activists themselves and accept that activists are not necessarily idealists who don't care about money. For many of them, for actually almost all of them, it's not just a cause, it's a career, right? It's how they put their kids in school potentially or how they feed their kids or whatnot. Um, this question of what do NGO activists want, it's a big question, not one that I'm gonna answer today, but worth thinking about. So in order to answer this question, I uh, moved to this social enterprise framework, which was really attractive for a number of reasons. I, think that there's a lot of promise in looking at social enterprises to understand maybe what Chinese NGOs might look like in say 5, 10, 15 years. Um, the social enterprise framework really suggests that actors um, have, who previously may have a principal motive or social goals can use um, profit motive models to actually achieve those goals. Now this is just a summation of what is a number of different uh, a number of different definitions, none of which seem to sort of uh, have sort of be carried carried on from piece to piece. Um, it's sort of, I think, in this uh, idea that's so that's still sort of in people's minds and hasn't been clearly articulated or at least uh, uh, agreed upon. And here, the definition that I use is it's about identifying opportunities, engaging them in effective ways, acquiring necessary necessary resources, which is key. That's why I put it in italics, and completing a project. Ultimately, there's a, there is a resource agenda here, 
which nicely captures, I think, what a lot of these organizations end up doing. Um, and it accommodate, accommodates for varying degrees of socialness. So a social enterprise has been, dis I'm sorry, a company like Ben & Jerry's, before it was acquired by Unilever, so I don't think it counts anymore, um, uh, has been talked about as being a social enterprise. And then obviously NGO type groups could be social enterprises. So very broad, which is good and bad, right? The failings of a social enterprise framework. So it accounts for various kinds of uh, social enterprises, which is great for my purposes, I guess, because I can start talking about NGOs as being social enterprises, just as previously we talked about Ben and Jerry's being a social enterprise. Um, but it doesn't offer an explanation for change. And that's what's, I think, most crucial to understand. How is it that an NGO could become a social enterprise? Um, it doesn't show us how, or doesn't tell us how organizations formally fully social, say over here, become uh, social enterprises. Or likewise, why sort of an organization that might have been fully entrepreneurial becomes more social. This is maybe corporate social responsibility, which I'll get to at the very end of this talk. It doesn't account for change. So that's what we need to do. And that's what I'm attempting to do. And in the case of Chinese NGOs, I look at sort of the how is it possible that these NGOs could become social enterprises. And the key, uh, sort of the key way of explaining this is thinking, looking at the activists themselves. And this is drawing back upon data from, um, from my book. Um, survey data sort of shows that uh, a surprisingly high number, at least surprising to me, a surprisingly high number of activists were trained in business at university. So a fourth of respondents had financial related degrees. That means that it's possible for them to use, or maybe more possible for them to use these for-profit profit models because maybe they learned about it at university. Um, and either a fourth to a half, depending upon the sector, had previous work experiences in businesses. So they had the training and had the experience. And for a number of them, they understand how to secure funding as a result. Um, again, they also have their own financial needs and interests. This gets back to thinking about activists not as these idealists, but as economic individuals, okay, that they are. The political economy part of, of this paper ends up getting to the why necessary. Why is it necessary, at least in my estimation, for these, or, for these organizations to adapt bringing in these more for-profit business models and start looking like social enterprises? Um, none of these points should really be new for a lot of us, but it's just sort of a reminder that there are both political and economic rationales behind uh, the need for this, uh, for this uh, adaptation. The first about business regist registration, which I've written about, several of us have probably written about and we've talked about today, um, in some contexts is easier to achieve. But of course, when you get registered as a business, it's more expensive because then you have to start paying the taxes that you might not have necessarily had to pay before. Um, a number of people begun to write about this. I haven't, but a very sort of important point here about sort of philanthropic culture is nascent. Now, I'm not one to suggest that Chinese people don't want to or don't give because of cultural norms. I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that there aren't you know, laws that encourage giving that exist in a place like you know, North America and actually most of the Western world. Um, you know, tax incentives. Um, norms for paying volunteers, increased cost. 
This was one of the most fascinating things that I came across that I'm assuming many of you have come across as well, that there is this dominant norm that's actually been codified in, um, uh, in Beijing right around the Olympics that if you volunteer, you have to be compensated which doesn't seem to make much sense in terms of our understanding of volunteers, but that just increased the cost of being an NGO. Again, might increase the need for them to adapt, bring on models to get more money that they didn't necessarily have. Obviously, political barriers to international funding um, can, uh, can um, exhaust and frustrate donors, so donors might pull out because of that, or the donors might believe that the job is done and they move on, a la um, Global Fund. So there are both political and economic rationales here to, or, or, or sort of forces that would lead them to do this. In the paper, I talk about this uh, evolutionary th theory. This is the how is it done? How, how might NGOs adapt into social enterprises? And I'm not gonna dwell on it today because I don't have the time in the talk. Um, but essentially what this is all about is this idea that uh, through many different mechanisms, whether they be through having more babies in sort of evolutionary terms, right? If you are a species and you have more babies, you're more successful, right? That's how you end up sort of uh, kind of passing along these, these dominant or these strong traits. Um, in the case of NGOs, this might be you have young activists that you sort of nurture and they grow their own wings and go off and create their own NGOs, which, um, as Riza and Jennifer have noted, might not, exit, might not happen as much, at least in your, in your research, but certainly has the potential. But there is this idea that you might be looking at other organizations, seeing what other organizations do, and you mimic them. That can actually be sort of an evolutionary force as well. So we can think about the high frequency of, uh, 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 of NGOs that sort of bring sort of ad adapt themselves and have these more for-profit type models, um, whether it be consulting or selling um, publications or whatnot, as, uh, as being sort of an example of, of successful uh, evolution. Um, or we can also just think about market share. I don't want us to assume that the, that the way that we can measure uh, sort of success of adaptation from NGO to enterprise is about more organizations. It's not always about more organizations. It might be about uh, sort of the cream rising to the top, sort of a few really strong organizations emerging because they're the ones that actually adapt. So that's, it's important to keep that in mind. It's not, it's not just sort of a, a numbers game, which we've already expressed how problematic it might be to talk about Chinese NGOs from the terms of a numbers game. So for the last couple slides, um, I want to talk about sort of the hypotheses. And this is really the end of the paper. This is my um, uh, sort of goal for the next big project, for essentially the next book, to examine sort of a number of these hypotheses. And I've kind of put them in two different categories, thanks, um, between whether or not this adaptation from NGO to social enterprise is a good thing for activism and civil society, whatever that is, or a bad thing. Maybe it's in between. So it could be sort of a win-win for both activism and rights expansion and, and, and civil society building and whatnot. Why? First hypothesis is that having more financial independence, which is what a for-profit model might very well provide, 
can actually free activists to follow passions. We've already talked about how a lot of these NGOs feel that they're doing work that they don't really want to do because the donor tells them that they have to do it, right? And maybe if you can follow your passion, that leads to a stronger organization, right? Um, maybe they're not going to sort of get fatigued by the whole fact that they're doing stuff that they're not interested in, maybe. Um, the second probably could ensure longer-term sustainability and might solve this problem that, uh, that you two have spoken about in terms of institutional knowledge. If you can at least be around a lot longer, um, maybe you can be around long enough to pass that knowledge on to others, whether they stay in the organization or they grow wings and go off to another organization. And the third is that you know, using business strategies, what we call, might call social marketing, maybe could prove more effective for a lot of these organizations. Maybe using business models might lead them to a more successful, um, uh, to more success than, than before. But I have to be honest, I'm not a, I, I'm, I'm always, I'm a pessimist by nature, I guess. And, you know, whenever you look at the evolutionary, or the, the sort of the, the literature on uh, evolutionary biology, one of the key points that they make, and I like this point, is that evolutionary sort of adaptations are not always for the long-term good. You can evolve down a blind alley. You can evolve in a way that might sort of ensure existence for one more generation or two more generations, but it might get to the point where there's no, you can't succeed beyond that, beyond three or four. Uh, 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 um, three or four generations, so a blind alley toward extinction. And ultimately, I think my, my suspicion is this is what adaptation might lead to. Uh, the fourth hypothesis thus being, in, after a while, economic priorities are going to outstrip those social priorities, right? You might stop caring about the social mess and might stop, start caring more about the money that you're actually getting, particularly if you're very successful. That's a real paradox of success. Um, the fifth hypothesis, Success and vested interest in the current system might actually create disincentives to upend it, which is a bigger problem, I think, for NGOs generally in a place like China. If you end up being very successful in an authoritarian system, do you have a real incentive to change the rules of the game, just like, say, uh, business, business people do in China? Um, and the sixth, maybe even most fundamentally, new businesses fail. What is the figure that something like 75% of new businesses fail? Um, competition is going to be stiff. As these NGOs sort of become more like businesses, there's reason to believe that they're going to be encountering competitors who are much better at the business side than they ever were. And they might not be around much longer. Finally, where else might this conversation get us? Um, I think ultimately, you know, this is not just about China. And this is even not just about NGOs. Um, for me, this is a lot about the notion that you can actually have convergence between two very different types of social organizations or organizations. As NGOs sort of move towards this profit model, for-profit model, and become sort of social enterprises, all the while corporations moving towards corporate social responsibility and becoming sort of something different. After a while, it might be difficult to discern what's in the middle here. Are these NGOs with profit motives or are they corporations with social uh, goals? And I'm not necessarily sure it matters, but it's certainly an interesting puzzle. Great, thank you.